It's a, uh, it's a really, okay, so let me put it this way. This is going to be complicated because I told you when we first started, this book of Acts thing is going to take us years. And so I'm trying to break it up naturally into sort of movements. And so we're coming to the end of one of those movements, end of chapter 4. And we're going to take a little bit of a break as we anticipate Advent and some other things uh, kind of in the life of our, our kind of existence together. So we're going to be picking it up in a few weeks, but we're going to kind of close kind of in the middle of a segment that doesn't really have a natural ending. So it's somewhat awkward. We're actually going to kind of end right in the middle of something really challenging and difficult and terrifying that's going to happen. And it's going to allude to it a little bit, um, but we're just going to kind of hang it up there and let it just sit out there. So a lot of times my preaching doesn't really end with things being all nice and tidy. It sort of just ends with awkward sort of reality. And so that's kind of where we are. So we're going to end this segment, this 10-week kind of movement, uh, and a little bit of a, a kind of an incredible picture of the church, but one we're going to left with, if you kind of glance ahead to chapter 5, and this sort of terrifyingly awkward kind of situation for the church. And so, um, But we're going to get there by exploring really what life looks like in this community. So for the past few weeks, as I told you, we've really looked at this chapters 3 and 4 as this incredible picture that is both incredibly beautiful and amazing, but inwardly challenging, confronting. It's religiously kind of irreverent, if you will. And it throws in our face some really powerful questions where it juxtaposes the culture and the cross. And we've really kind of explored those over the past few weeks. And what we've seen is that our kind of existence as Christ followers is going to come in contact with culture in some really difficult ways. And we're going to be asked some really difficult questions. And this morning what we're going to see is we're going to see sort of a picture of how the church begins to live out their lives in the middle of difficult culture. In in a culture that is sort of in opposition and has a different set of values than the church does. And we're going to look at some tangible ways that this happens. So here's kind of where we've been in the past few weeks. Peter and John have been arrested for proclaiming truth and doing miracles. Remember the miracle of the the crippled man that was healed and performing that miracle right in the temple and they were seized by the Sadducees and they were arrested for proclaiming the name of Jesus and doing miracles. They were taken before the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling court in all the land, and they were ordered to never again speak in the name of Jesus or to talk about this guy ever again. Which, of course, we know doesn't go over real well with Peter and he sort of makes that really bold statement where he says, listen, you know, You've got to decide for yourself whether it's right for us to obey God or to obey you. We can't help talking about what we've seen and heard. That's kind of what Peter says. They don't really know how to punish them, and so they release them, and and they return to their own people. And last week what we saw is as Peter and John return to their own people, we see this beautiful moment of authenticity in the church, this sort of moment of prayer and spontaneity where Peter and John, after being in jail, are returned to their own people, and they just enter into prayer together. And that basically what they pray for is what we explored last week. And it's really powerful. They prayed that even in the midst of this council telling them they can't speak in the name of Jesus, they prayed for boldness, which we'll talk a little bit more about again again today. And they prayed on the character and nature of God's name, that he was creator and revealer and that he was sovereign. And we kind of explored all that that meant and was wrapped up in their prayer life. And what does that mean for you and I? Do we really believe these same truths about God? So we're going to build on these foundation principles that we explored last week, and we're going to get a picture at the end of Acts chapter 4 of the tangible, practical way that the church began to live this together. And we're going to bring this sort of whole segment to a close. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 
32-ish. Um, I think, how about that? Yes, verse 32. Now it's going to sound a little familiar to what we saw in Acts chapter 2. Okay, so a few kind of pictures ago, if you remember, we talked about how the believers were together and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and to the prayer. You remember that? Five weeks ago. And we're looking at those things as things that the church did. And what we're going to see today is how they began to live. Um, Very similar, but also kind of an, an important distinction from the things they devoted themselves to, to how they actually pulled this off together. So if you've got your Bible, let's open up there. And before we do, um, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather uh, here this morning. We thank you that you draw us into your presence. God, we thank you that you invite us into relationship with you. God, we thank you that you are the revealer of everything that is true. God, you're a revealer of truth. And Lord, we know that we don't open your word and discover you. God, but you, through your Holy Spirit, You enlighten our hearts. And so, God, we ask that even as we gather here, you be able to take your word and teach our hearts. Ask God to move in you this morning. Just as you sit here, just pray. Ask God to to move in your heart, to draw you closer to him, to to just teach you something. Just pray that God would move in you. Pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you. Just pray that uh, God would move. And then be in the habit of praying for other people. Each week I kind of mention this. Pray for other people. Um, Don't make this about you. Pray that God would move in the people around you. Lord, move and teach us. And that God, as we look at what the community looked like some 2,000 years ago and all of its imperfections, God, may we long Uh, to deeply be able to replicate these truths. As petrifying as they may seem, Lord, would we deeply long to replicate this in our own lives. So God, move in us this morning and teach us, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 432, we'll go down to the end of the chapter. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And chapter 4 comes to a close. Now those of you that have read ahead realize that chapter 4 doesn't really end with 5. It, it, roll, it doesn't really end there. It rolls into 5. And we have a really uncomfortable, awkward situation that's going to unfold where a couple of people drop dead because of their disobedience. And chapter 4 is alluding to that. But we're going to leave it hanging uh, today uh, because we're going to dive into that awkwardness next time we do this. But I want to leave it there because this is the closing picture of what we've seen begin in chapter 3. Chapter 3 begins this sort of 24-hour period where Peter and John are facing prison. They are forced to articulate their deep beliefs to the highest ruling council. They're threatened with death. They return to the community. The community celebrates and falls into this authentic moment of prayer. They cry out to God. 
God who is sovereign, who is revealer, who is creator, right? And then it tells us how they began to live upon those truths together. And that's where we're going today. Now, today, if you look closely, I think most of us would say, that is what I want in theory. But we're petrified that it might really apply to us. This is how the, how I mean, this is exactly what I feel. Like, that is amazing. That they shared things in common, that they were unified in one heart and mind. They sold their stuff and gave those in need. Wouldn't you love to be part of a church like that, in theory? But when we think about it, we are all desperately hoping that this is something that was called 2,000 years ago and that we are not actually called into this. I am, because I don't know what that looks like for me. And what we're going to explore this morning is that this isn't just a call, but there's something really unique and practical about the way the church should live together. And as we look at this, there's, there's really like four pieces here that I want you to see. And some are going to sound familiar and some are going to sound um, a little new. But I think that they're anchor points, that if we as a church could begin to say, what if we really explore the truth behind this thing? And that it begins with me and my own fear of letting go of my life and giving it all to the Lord. Um, how that might revolutionize not only your own relationship with Jesus, but how you see your relationship with the church. So here's what's happening. They've returned, and, and, and Luke gives us this snapshot of what they're doing together. Remember last week we talked about how they were their own people, that they were no longer, they no longer saw themselves as part of this sort of Jewish nation and culture, but they were this new people that was being identified and created, and they were from all different walks of life. And they were their own people now. And that Peter and John returned to their own people, and they were engaging in this life together. But life was totally new, and this idea was a complete sort of revolutionary movement for them. But they do a few things here that are really unique. And the first thing that we see is that, Paul, or that Luke tells us that they were united, right, in heart and mind. They were one in heart and mind. The early church lived in unity. Now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that they never argued. You cannot read scripture and think the early church was perfect. Oftentimes I have a lot of people go, yeah, we could just be the early church. It'd be great. Are you kidding? They were crazy. They fought all the time. Read first and second Corinthians. Paul is constantly going, stop, stop. Galatians was written because the church was splitting in half. The early church was not perfect. But all through the New Testament, we see the writers refer to them as being unified. They were one in heart and mind. And unity, as we use it today in our modern church culture, we tend to think of it in terms of inclusiveness. That because we are all say that we are Christians, it doesn't matter really what we believe, we are unified and we are inclusive. Right? It's not really what the New Testament says at all. It's not unity for the sake of cultural happiness. It's not unity for the sake of making sure that no one is offended. Unity in scripture is really about the fact that the early church was about one thing, right? They loved Jesus, and they were living to magnify and proclaim his name. That was it. They thought about all the nuances, but what they lived for was to magnify the name of Jesus. It's why they existed. Our church, not this necessarily church, but our modern big church doesn't understand this concept of unity. We think unity somehow means that we have to be grafted together in what we believe. And if we don't, then we have to just sort of sit idly by for the sake of being inclusive. The church's main problem 
In all honesty, the church's main problem is that, as my dad would say, we live with the case, or the people that come to church, that are part of the church, live with the case of the I wants. My dad just says this all the time, my brother and I, every time we go to the mall, hey dad, I want this, hey dad, I want that. And he looks at me like, you guys have got a horrible case of the I wants, right? Like, I want this, I need that. The church, as it exists, the reason it's fractured and broken is because we all bring our I wants to the table. And we go to churches and we say, I want this and I want that and I need this and I should get that. Over 20 years of working and living in the church, you would not believe the countless numbers of emails and phone calls and letters I've received of people that are so displeased because the church is not doing this, doing that, threatening this. I'm going to withhold my tithe, withhold my attendance until we do this. The most common people, most common reason the people leave the early church, or not the early church, the modern church, right? It's not over some theological kind of uh, misgiving or over the fact the church is bankrupt or whatever. They most commonly leave because, and I quote, the church is no longer meeting my needs. The church does not exist to meet your needs. Period. So if you've got that in your mind, you need to wipe it out. The early church did not exist to meet the needs of the people so that they could have the areas of their life that they want programmed programs. So that they could have the right singles ministry or the right youth ministry or the right young adults ministry or the right prime timers ministry. Name it. The church did not exist to foster programs to meet the voids in people's lives. But it's what we've tailored our modern church to. I was a part of the church Years ago, and his leadership was in an argument over whether or not they were going to put in a bowling alley. We had extra money. We need to reach young people. How do you do that? Young people bowl, right? What? Bowl? Old people bowl. I think. I'm old. We bowl. But I remember thinking, how can we meet? The conversation was, how can we meet every need of every person so that they'll stick around? church was unified not because they were alike they were so diverse these were galilean peasants fishermen jewish aristocrats gentile converts this was the craziest group of people you've ever seen and there wasn't a history of generational christianity to go on they were all bringing their garbage to the table they were all bringing their bad theology they were all bringing their own ideas they were all bringing their mess But they were unified, and Luke could say they were unified because they were unified under their common desire to love Jesus, right? And to have his name be magnified in everything that they did. They fought like crazy about everything else, but they were unified under that single banner. The church existed that way. So as we think about unity in the church all being one heart, we tend to think that we all have to be from the same kind of political persuasion, We have to be from the same thoughts on this or on that. The reality is is that our common goal should be what unites us. It's driven by the Holy Spirit, united by the Holy Spirit, that no matter what happens, we exist to magnify and glorify the name of Jesus. And if there's other things going on, we've got to figure out a way to extinguish them so that we can lift up the number one thing. Because all too often, the number two thing becomes the number one thing. So the early church was unified, one in heart, and mind. I find that incredible. Listen to this. The second thing that we see, so they lived in unity. They also see they lived in selflessness. Look at verse, well, it's still verse 32, about that. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. 
So here you've got this group, and we're not talking about four people. Remember, we've watched this thing grow from 120 to like 5,000. Now, they weren't all there. Some had gone back out to their own lands. But we're still talking about hundreds and hundreds of people. And it said that no one looked at their stuff and said it's mine, but they shared everything that they had. Now, what's at play here is a principle that I have talked about at least a thousand times. And I'm not kidding. Like, it has probably been a thousand times. You've been coming at all. You've heard me say it. And here's this principle. Right? And it's a principle that should drive your relationship with Christ. And it's a principle that should drive our understanding of community. And here it is. That my stuff and my life belong to the Lord. So that as a follower of Christ, my life, my stuff, and everything I have belong to Jesus. It is a revolutionary principle that if you fully ever grasp it or put your mind around it, it would change the way that you see the world, the way that you see people, the way that you see your things, your job, your life, your kids, that my life and everything in it belongs to the Lord. That my kids, my bank accounts, my cars, my house, they do not belong to me. In fact, Paul puts it this way, I am not mine. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. My life and everything in it belong to the Lord. Now, I've said it so many times, it almost seems a little bit contrite, but it is so true. This principle governs the understanding of your relationship with Christ and how you live with the church. No one counted their own possessions as theirs, but they shared everything they had. When you gave your life to Christ, you gave him everything. Every tiny corner, every little piece of your dusty heart, everything that you're clinging on to, everything that you desire, all of your hopes, all of your dreams. You said, God, I exchange my life for you. Which means you get all of it. That my life and everything in it belongs to the Lord. Now, when it's no longer yours, when you realize that, you become a kind of giver. You become a steward of all that God has given you and you get to share it. It is a privilege and a pleasure to share it. When it belongs to you, it's like pry it out of my cold hand. But when it's God's, I get to share what God has given me. And that's what we're seeing in the early church. We're seeing them saying that they didn't count their stuff as theirs. God had just sort of given it to them. They had given their life to him and they got to share things with people. I've told you this a dozen times. We love to give out of abundance. When I've got extras, it's what we're taught from kindergarten all the way up. When I've got two crackers and I'm full, I'll give you whatever's left. We share with people after we've done our thing, whatever that is. And it's how we're framed to give and think about the church anyway. Like after I've done mine, here are my old clothes. Here's my old furniture. Here's my old leftover financial contribution. This is just how we exist. It's not an indictment. It's just true. Because we can't, and I'm fully guilty of this, cannot truly grasp and live the understanding that my life and everything in it belongs to the Lord. Because with everything that I am, I want it to belong to me. Because if I have it, I can control it, and I can feel safe, and I can feel comfortable. And as long as I do that, I am constantly in longing, and I'm never content. If you understand that principle, that your life and everything in it belongs to the Lord, it will revolutionize the way that you think about stuff, things, people in the church. It's what we see here. We see there the church saying, these things aren't mine, but they're ours to share together. Now, I know this is a petrifying thing, okay, and I'm going to get to it more in a minute because we're not talking about communism, right? We're talking about community, and I'll get, I'll get to why. But this is petrifying. Is God really calling me to share my stuff? I mean, I don't, 
I don't really know how I would begin to even think about that. I'll explain it more in a minute. So we've got this idea of unity. They lived in unity. We also see that see they lived in selflessness. They just sort of understood that their lives were now the Lord's. And when they surrendered, they walked away from everything. Family, jobs, life. Their lives were in danger. They were living in persecution. It's not mine anyway. If God wants to take it, it's his. And so they shared with people living in this context. The third thing that we see is that they lived in boldness. Listen to verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Now, this isn't a throwaway verse. You just kind of look at it, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, they lived with boldness. But do you remember last week what the church prayed for? Look at verse 429. So as they gathered together and huddled together, this is what they prayed for. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Remember the Sanhedrin's threats? They were not idle. These were death threats. That if you talk about the name of Jesus or you do miracles in his name, like there's going to be some big issues. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Consider their threats, right? And let us speak your word with great boldness. What we see here is that this is a tangible example of what they had prayed for. And here's what I mentioned last week. I find that prayer incredibly amazing. Because here are these gathered people. They're under incredible opposition. In fact, these are are threats for their very life. They were living in blasphemy. They were proclaiming that Jesus was God and that he was the resurrection. And there was no other way to God than through Jesus. And the Sanhedrin had basically told them that this is blasphemy. And they all knew that by law it's punishable by death. So we would not blame them if what they prayed for is that God would remove the opposition. God, we pray that this persecution would cease. God, we pray that you would grant us favor. God, we pray that you would remove these difficult situations. That is exactly what I would have prayed for. That's exactly what I pray for this morning. God, make my life easier. God, remove the difficulty. God, remove the challenge. God, make this path straight for me. Do you see what the early church prayed for? They didn't pray for any of that. They said, God, in the middle of these threats, let us be bold. In other words, in the middle of where we're living, let us glorify and magnify your name, whatever the cost. None of us would have blamed them. They had wives, they had husbands, they had kids, they had aging parents, they had people they had to take care of. We wouldn't have blamed them if they got out of Jerusalem for a couple of weeks and just let the difficulty blow over. We wouldn't have blamed them if they'd have kind of negotiated a deal or if they would have looked at each other and said, hey, listen, we need to tone this down a little bit just for a little while. Because every single one of us probably would have done the same thing. But together they lived in boldness, proclaiming the name of Jesus. Now listen, this is not someone else's call. As a follower of Christ, you are called to boldly engage in the proclamation of the God that has turned your life around. This is not my job. The proclamation of the gospel is your call as a follower of Christ. It is our call together. Who did you bring today? Who have you told about Jesus? When's the last time you actually engaged someone in your life in a conversation and explained to them that the God of the universe who breathed life into their lungs has changed you and you want him to know, you want them to know him. You hold the single greatest truth in all of human history and we're petrified about what people may think of us. And so we go years in relationship with people and never tell them about the single greatest thing in our whole world. 
and I am guilty of it. And you know what's even harder? Is that we can do it with a stranger, but we can't do it with our brother or our mom or our dad or the people that we love the most. And we hold the single greatest truth in all of history, life-giving, abundant, real life here, and a promise of eternal life, and we're worried about what they're going to think. They lived in boldness together. But angels isn't somebody else's job. It's just how we're called to live. doesn't mean you stand on the corner at Walmart and just speak crazy things, but it means you love people enough to invite them into the radical truth that has changed you. I look at this and I say, the church exists to program evangelism now. That's what we do. We have evangelism committees, and they put on events by which you can just invite someone into something where somebody else will tell them about Jesus so you don't have to actually turn that corner. The entire church was created to be the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the the bold proclamation of that, even in the face of difficulty and opposition. None of us, I venture to say none of us, probably none of us, will face death for our belief in Jesus. We just face uncomfortability. We're uncomfortable. The early church lived in boldness together, and it says that they proclaimed, and guess what? Much grace was upon them all. It doesn't say that God protected them. It doesn't say that God made everybody come to know his son. It doesn't say that God gave them everything they wanted and he put this incredible blanket on them. In fact, as we go through the book of Acts, we are going to see some incredibly difficult things. We are going to watch a young person involved in the church get stoned to death because of what he believed. But we're going to we're gonna watch God not intercede. We're going to watch some incredibly difficult things unfold. In fact, next week we're going to see an incredibly difficult situation. Not next week, but we're going to pick up again. We don't know how to explain it. See is that God's grace was on them all. So the early church, they lived in this unity. They they had this sort of selflessness, and they lived in boldness together. This was their all their call. They were all risking their lives for the sake of Christ together, and they were unified in their desire to proclaim and magnify the name of Jesus. And then finally, we see this little picture, and I'll kind of wrap it up with this with, with the last part here. So. Verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money of the sale and put it at the apostles' feet and distributed it to anyone as it came anyone as anyone's need. So from time to time, those who owned lands and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. Now, for our incredibly wealthy Western church, as we are in the top of the entire population of wealth in the world gathered in this room, and that is just true. And the funny thing about that is there's not one person in the room that thinks they're rich, period. But compared to the world, we are in the top 1% of the entire population of the earth, right? With that understanding, this is the most petrifying verse and the most commonly ignored verse in this whole first movement of grace. Because surely this doesn't apply to us. And I'll tell you the truth, most of us want this. In the deep recess of our heart, we want to be a part of a, a group of people that so deeply cares for each other that we will leverage our own lives for that sake. But we're also desperately afraid and hoping it really doesn't apply to us. We long for this, but we're afraid of it. So what's really happening here? I mean, is this really? It looks like socialism. It looks like communism. It looks like everybody's giving their stuff to a couple of guys, and they distribute it, and everybody gets whatever they get. Nobody's allowed to have anything. It's not really what's happening at all. 
what we're seeing is a community that's so driven by their love for Jesus and the desire to magnify his name that they don't want people in their context oppressed by poverty. A couple of reasons why this is really different than some kind of socialist or, or communist kind of movement. The first is that people were allowed to own things, right? They had houses, and when they, times came and they needed to sell them, they sold a house or a piece of land. Acts chapter 2 even says that after they had distributed to people, they met at each other's homes and they broke bread. Acts chapter 12, we're going to learn they spent a lot of time in Mary, the mother of John Mark's home. People had homes. Clement of Alexandria, an ancient kind of historian, said, if everybody gave all their stuff away, what context would there be to to give away your entire income? The idea was that people were allowed to own things. It wasn't a mandate that you couldn't have ownership of of things, right? So you've got that picture. You also have the picture that things were distributed to people as they had need. So it wasn't an equal like, okay, so here we're going to sell off the Prater house. And everybody gets a tenth of everything, whatever, and everybody gets an equal share. No. They didn't want people amongst them living under the oppression of poverty, and poverty is oppressive. And they didn't want people living that. So from time to time when deep needs came, people would say, I've got something. And I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to give all my money of the sale of it to the community so that poverty doesn't oppress people in our context. And the leaders gave to people as they had distribution of all things. It was a giving out of mind, which belonged to the Lord anyway, so that people weren't oppressed. And it was voluntary. You don't see anywhere in Scripture that the leaders mandated that people sell things or sell their house. It was a compulsion saying, this is not mine. I love the Lord. He's convicting me to get rid of this thing, whatever it is, land, house, stuff, and give it to the community. In other words, it was between people and people. This is not a picture of socialism. It's a picture of community that says, I want to live in a context where my stuff that doesn't belong to me is the Lord's, and when he calls me to get rid of it at times, I'll do that. And I'm going to give it to the community so that we're not living under oppression. The Bible speaks constantly about being on guard on love of money, on love of stuff, on love of the world, on love of material, constantly constantly. Guard your heart against love of the world against material possessions, and against money. You cannot live in the New Testament or the Old Testament and not see it. Don't store up for yourself. Do not become a lover of money, right? Constantly. Even Jesus himself talks about these things all the time. The reason the Bible talks about it so often is because it is a real problem. And I deeply believe that our love for stuff, our love for money, our love for comfort, our love for things, calling them our own, is driven by one thing. That thing is fear. I deeply, deeply believe that we love things in the world and money and stuff because we're driven by fear. Not fear like of roller coasters or hikers, by the way, but fear of the unknown, of failure, fear of not having, fear of what other people are going to think. It's really a common kind of deepest recess in us. It's a fear of being able to say, the Lord will fill me with more stuff. But if I got rid of this thing,
Jesus can move in minds and can forgive minds. Jesus is in heaven. I can move in contentment and heals of everything else is gone. Man, I lost my house, my job, my stuff, my whatever, and I will be content with you. And that should be the anchor goal of our lives, that if I had nothing, you would be enough for me. If I never got married, if I never had this, if I never did that, if I never got promoted, if I never had an identity that told me I was something other than yours, would I be content in you? That's a real question. Because we all put things in our life to try and fill it in. And we don't think our deep identity here can just cover this up, make myself feel better, cover this up. Okay, well, I'll pick if I'm going to ever just be alone. context of the early church was that some of you already had it. There were no options. When you gave your life to Christ, you were walking away from your entire heritage. You were probably disowned by your family who was Jewish people. There was no way you were going to get employed by a Jewish kind of person that was against this whole religious movement of Christianity. You were given your whole identity. And you know what? You were also given another thing for which you were not. And we're going to see that right after the Christianity for us and most of us is about convenience. It's about not feeling so guilty about the things I do as a result. Following Christ is not a thing of convenience. It is together as a church with one believer, one heart and one mind, selflessly saying, God, my stuff is yours. It's not mine. If I don't want it, don't bring it here. Do what the Lord calls you to do with it, but it's his. To live boldly together, to invite the world into this sort of radical thing that is your relationship with Christ. And to fight with everything you have against a love of stuff. And not live in fear. But to someday resolve yourself to, that, to be able to answer the question that says, Jesus, fill everything else for me. And the last piece of good news is I said it. Jesus, you are enough for me. And you really think of that last question, God, if I trying to take time as a community uh, periodically, I try and do it every year, to just kind of share our hearts and needs together. What's the perfect time for us to do that? We'll take a little bit of a prayer time and we'll just kind of offer some things up and just find a way together. We're here almost for the first couple of weeks. We didn't have to be a part of this, but it's, it's just an opportunity for us to stay involved in the lives of each other. And so what we'll do is if you have a need or a concern or someone you'd like prayed for or uh, someone you just want to thank God for, then we'll just sort of shout them out and I'd jot them down and we'll pray for them together. I'll make them up. But it's sort of a time for us to continue to push back from that mentality that says church is about me coming and getting. But I want to know about the people around here and what's going on in their lives and if there's something I can really lift up together. So we take a little bit of time and we'll, we'll pray over some things. So if you've got something you'd like to offer up,